Corner Fringe Ministries presents the sequel to the teaching, The Two Trees. This teaching is named, The Two Women. Enjoy. If you remember, in my last message, we looked at the two trees that were in the midst of the Garden of Eden, right? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we looked at the attributes or characteristics that these two trees possessed. And the fact that these two trees, they really are symbolic of two different paths. Obviously, the tree of life, symbolic of the path of life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is symbolic of the path of death. Now, I've titled today's sermon, Two Women. And what I'm going to show you is that the trees that were actually in the midst of the garden, they are in fact pictured, we find them pictured, throughout Scripture. And one of the ways that we actually find them pictured throughout Scripture is through the imagery of two women. So today we're going to look at how these two women relate to the tree of life and to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I want to begin today's message by taking you to the book of Proverbs. And this is what it says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. Now, as we continue in this passage, as we go through, through chapter 3, you're going to see that wisdom is personified. This is very important. Wisdom gets personification. It's personified as a woman. All right? But before we get there, there's something I want to make sure you understand about this wisdom, about this understanding that is mentioned here. We need to define these terms. And I'm not interested in your definition, and I'm not interested in my definition. I'm interested in how the Bible defines these terms. And it's very important we look at the definition, because this is all going to come into play as we go throughout today's message. Going to Deuteronomy 4, verse 5, we read, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them. Listen to this. For this is your wisdom and your understanding and the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In other words, this, this Proverbs 3.13, where it says, happy is the man who finds wisdom and gains understanding, it is referring to Torah. It is referring to the commandments of God to God's instructions. That is what is wisdom and understanding. And let me tell you, when you understand that, you look differently at Torah. You look differently at the law of God, at the commandments of God. It is the wisdom and understanding. And we continue in verse 14. For her proceeds are better than profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. Or in her gain than fine gold, she is more precious than rubies. And all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Verse 18, something we covered last time. She is a tree of life. She who? The woman, wisdom. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. So we see this wisdom, which we know to be the commandments of God, is identified as the tree of life. 
this isn't a surprise because we talked about this last week, that the rabbis actually called the wooden handles that we see here the Yetzchayim. Literally, they see the Torah. They call it the tree of life. But not only that, but we also see that this tree of life, this wisdom and understanding, is portrayed as a woman. Wisdom is personified as a woman. And you know, this is not something that the apostles did not understand. Let me give you an example. The apostle Paul understood the concept perfectly. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, I believe. He actually talks about that Yeshua the Messiah, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul personified the terms of power and wisdom through the life of Yeshua. Now, with this understanding, I want to jump ahead a few chapters because we're going to be told more about this woman, this woman wisdom, and the things that this woman does. Listen to Proverbs 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom cry out? And understanding, lift up her voice. She takes her stand on the top of the high hill, beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates, at the entrance, uh, at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. Verse 4. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Jumping ahead for the sake of time. Now therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways. Does this sound familiar? It should, because we know Yeshua says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Going back to the Torah, right in the Ten Commandments, we find that he shows mercy and forgiveness to those that love him and keep his commandments. The very same statement we find being made here. This woman wisdom is proclaiming. Verse 33, hear instruction and be wise and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the post of my doors. Verse 35, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. The personification that we see here of wisdom, it cannot, it's not even a debatable point. It's unmistakably, it resembles, it is a reflection of our Lord Yeshua. That's what it is. And we know from New Testament testimony that whoever believes in Yeshua will be given eternal life. Which corresponds to these very words spoken in verse 35. Look at this. Whoever finds me finds life. What does Yeshua say? We talked about it last time. In, in, in uh, John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I would say that is echoing these very words. Whoever finds me, finds life. There's no question. John 10, going to John 10, he talks about, I have come to give them life, that they might have life more abundantly. This is the essence of our Messiah, of whom we worship. He is the giver of life. But not just that, but look at this. In verse 36, look at verse 36. Whoever sins against her wrongs his own soul, and all those who hate her love death. Well, that's fascinating because you'll find the very, the very same words coming out of Yeshua's mouth in the New Testament. Listen to what he says in John 12, 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words 
has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. In other words, those who hate him, they love death. Right? The simple point I am trying to make here thus far is the following. All these concepts, we have the tree of life. We have wisdom. Personified as the woman of wisdom. And Yeshua of Nazareth, all these terms are intimately woven together. Terms that are to be used or understood as transposable. If I'm talking about the tree of life, I am talking about Yeshua. Right? If I am talking about wisdom, I am talking about Yeshua. If I'm talking about Yeshua, that's a reflection of speaking of the tree of life. It's a reflection of speaking of wisdom. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why would Yeshua ever be likened to a woman? Or presented in the feminine, such as we are seeing here in Proverbs 8, and make no mistake, all the way, I mean, going back to Proverbs 3, especially into chapter 8, it's all about Yeshua. That's who it's referring to. But why would he be referred to in the feminine? I want to deal with this. I wasn't going to deal with this, but I know you would come up to me afterwards, so we're going to deal with this now. You have to understand that the terminology that's being used is figurative. It's figurative language, and that sometimes God decides to express himself figuratively in a different manner for the purpose of conveying or expressing an attribute of his character. It gives us, in other words, he's attempting to give us greater understanding through the teaching, through the figurative language. And this is something that we find being done in Scripture. It's not uncommon. Let me give you just a couple examples. In Matthew 23, verse 37, this is Yeshua. Oh, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Yeshua uses the analogy of, of a hen and her chicks to bring about a deeper understanding of the compassion, of the love that he has for his people. Obviously, Yeshua is not a hen. We don't worship an animal. He's not running around trying to collect, and we're not chicks. It's figurative, okay? Do you see this? It's figurative. Isaiah 66, he talks about as a mother comforts her child, this is Yahweh speaking, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, Israel. Is he really the mother? Is he called the mother? No, he's called the father. But what's he doing? He's expressing an attribute of himself that we can understand, bringing it into terms that we can, we can process, deep spiritual terms to be processed. And Again, this shouldn't surprise us because who made woman? Did man? God made woman. That tells me a woman is designed by our God, by the heart of God. And then beautiful nurturing behavior that she possesses, that comes from our God. When she, when she nurses and, and, and rears her children, and as a hen gathers them under her wings... You know, this is, this is all from the mind of God. The reason women are the way they are, men, is because of God. That's the deal. That's my answer. <laughs> now, let me, give you, let me give you another example, and I'll end after this example. Going to Matthew 12, Yeshua, he's sitting there, and he's teaching his disciples, okay? And they come to him, and they say, hey, 
Your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. Listen to what Yeshua says in, in uh, Matthew 12, 48. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, could you imagine? Do you really think that all the disciples all of a sudden stood still, were looking at each other going, Who's the sister and who's the brother here? And who's the mother? I mean, could you imagine Peter and James going, ah, Bartholomew, Matthew, you guys are the sisters. We're the men, we're the brothers. Obviously, that's silly. I'm being silly to prove a point. That's not. Yeshua was conveying a deep spiritual concept here that they were supposed to understand. And it is true that those who are in relationship to him, closest to him, that are his family, are those who do the will of the Father in heaven. So enough said about the, the femininity, uh, uh, the processing in, in Proverbs 8, which is representative of Yeshua. He's not a woman, he was a man. And it is man, made in, man was made in the image of God. Amen? All right. Now, as we move on to Proverbs chapter 9, we're going to read about this woman wisdom. And look at the remarkable things that this woman proclaims. It's amazing. Verse 1, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. What do you suppose this is referring to? Can you say the prophets? Can you say the fact that Yeshua, who is the wisdom of God, sent out His apostles? Go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28. Look at what wisdom does. She sends out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of this city. What is this woman crying? I really want to know. What is it that she's crying from the highest places of the city? Verse 4. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. This is where it begins to get really deep, and I need you to pay close attention and follow me on this, because this is going to tie into the end of today's message. The proclamation, the first proclamation is, come and eat of my bread, drink of my wine. Go to John chapter 6, the whole chapter is about Yeshua expressing, I am the bread of heaven. I have come down from heaven, and whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup, in other words, drinks this wine, eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has what? Everlasting life. Well, when you look at John, and you look at these bizarre statements that he makes of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, this call to come do it, what is he referring to? The chapter tells you, in John chapter 6, all those who believe in me will receive eternal life. Go home and read John chapter 6. It, this statement that you are looking on the board refers to faith in the Messiah Yeshua. It is a statement of faith. We must put our faith and trust in Him for salvation. This is the first, this is the proclamation. This is the first thing we see this woman wisdom making. Now, she goes on to say something else. Critically important. She says, forsake foolishness and live and go the way of understanding. What was Yeshua's message? The very first words out of His mouth were repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, forsake foolishness and live. 
Now, this statement is a call. It is a call to repent and do what? Keep the commandments of God. So this right here in Proverbs chapter 9, we see that we are to believe in Yeshua and we are to keep His commandments. Now as we continue, we're going to see a second woman. She comes into the picture, but she's different. She's not like this woman of wisdom. And actually, the introduction of hers is, is interesting. Uh, there's no mystery here. She's introduced as the foolish woman. This is what is said in verse 13. A foolish woman is clamorous. She is simple and knows nothing. For she sits at the door of her house on a seat, interesting, by the highest places of the city. The very places that we know the wisdom of woman, the wisdom, uh, woman wisdom is crying out. From the highest places of the city. What are we seeing here? It is as though you're literally looking at the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, both of those trees. And here you have the foolish woman and the wise woman in our midst. So it says, For she sits at the door of her house on the seat by the highest places of the city to call to those who pass by. Listen to this. Who is she calling? Who goes straight on their way? Who does she want? She wants those who are keeping the commandments of God who are on the straight and narrow, who are walking with Yeshua. This is her target audience. This is who she's coming after. We continue in verse 16. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, now I have to stop here. Does this sound familiar? It should, because we just read, this is the exact same thing that the woman wisdom had spoken. The very first thing was, whoever's simple, let him turn in here. Going back to verse 4. Exact same thing, whoever's simple, let him turn in here. In verse 16, by the foolish woman. Again, listen to me. These trees are in the midst of the garden. Both of them. And what's so fascinating is they were both beautiful. Right? We looked at that. Both of these trees were captivating. They had beauty. They were both fragrant. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil had a fragrance that penetrated from afar. This is fascinating. However, what did the wise woman cry out? Let's look at this again. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of the understanding. What does the foolish woman cry out? Listen to what she says. Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So this foolish woman is saying the exact same thing that we saw Satan say to Eve. Remember what Satan said, did God really say you shall not eat of this tree? It's okay to break the commandments of God. Why? Because you will surely not die. Removing, stripping the fear from breaking the commandments of God. In other words, this foolish woman is telling us to break God's commandments. It's pleasurable. It is sweet. It is good. This is how it's being presented. Now the passage goes on to say in verse 18, but he does not know that the dead are there, that our guests are in the depths of hell. In other words, those who heed the counsel of this foolish woman who partake of her fruit, they are those who have chosen death. And what is so vitally important here, so imperative, I do not want you to miss this. Notice that this verse specifically states, I will underline it for you, 
he does not know that the dead are there. In other words, those who take heed to the, to the counsel of this foolish woman, they don't have a true understanding of the ramifications of their decision. They're deceived. They don't believe that their actions are going to bring about death. When they break the commandments of God, they really don't believe it's going to bring about death. They're deceived. Exactly how we see Eve in, in, in her walk go. She was deceived. Total deception. It's all a lie. The foolish woman who heralds death, she's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A tree that is no doubt beautiful in fruit. Its fruit is desirable. We want it. Your flesh wants it. When your eyes look upon it, you will desire it. But in the end, it will kill you. It will be the death of you. To walk away from the commandments of God is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to let that sink in deep. You walk away from God, you stop keeping His commandments, you compromise the commandments in any way, and you have gone to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here in Proverbs, we're shown two women who are symbolic of the two trees in the Garden of Eden, but is also symbolic of Yeshua and the adversary, Hasatan, Satan. Now, this isn't the only imagery that we're given of two women in Scripture. The Scriptures are filled with two women. Let me give you an example. What about the story of Esther? Right? There's two women specifically mentioned in the story of Esther. Obviously, Esther being one, Vashti being another. They couldn't have been farther apart from each other. Vashti was rebellious in nature. But guess what? Exactly like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was she? Breathtaking. She was beautiful. And the king wanted to show her off. She had such a beautiful look to her, the king wanted to show her off. But when the king called to her, she rebelled. She refused to do what the king had commanded. She was a rebellious woman. Whereas in contrast, Esther, when the king called, Esther came. Esther obtained favor from the Lord. And rather than being rebellious, we know Esther, she was righteous. Rather than being puffed up in pride, Esther was humble. And rather than being selfish, like Vashti, Esther was selfless. She was willing to risk her own life for the sake of others, for the sake of Israel. Who does that sound like? The story of Esther and Vashti, it's just another example of the two trees in the garden. Another example of the two women mentioned in Proverbs chapter 9. What about the story of Ruth? Again, we're presented with two women. The story begins with Elimelech and Naomi. They're married, husband and wife. Elimelech and Naomi, they have two sons, right? Machlon and Chilion. And the family moves to the land of Moab, and the sons take wives. Machlon married a woman by the name of Ruth, while Chilion married Orpah. Here we have another example of two women. Now, over the course of time, all the men die in the land of Moab. Naomi's husband dies, and her two sons pass away. It leaves Naomi alone with her two daughters-in-law. Listen to this story. Listen to what happens. And Ruth, chapter 1, verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each to, the house, to, the, to her mother's house. 
The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. In verse 10, and they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why would you go with me? And there, are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should say I, I, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, verse 13, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices. Not one, both. They lifted up their voices. This is fascinating. And wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. So Orpah kisses Naomi. But Ruth clung to her. Notice the two women are both performing an action. Ruth is clinging, but Orpah, she's doing something different. She's giving her mother-in-law a kiss. And understand, it is a kiss goodbye. Look at the next verse, verse 15. And Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah did what? She left the faith. She compromised. She forsook the faith and she went back to her gods. She went back to her people, forsook the Lord God of Israel. For what? She's the example of death. This woman is an example of death. Whereas Ruth, in verse 16, But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Her whole point of clinging on to her is clinging on to the God of Israel. She refused to let go. She would not turn away from the Lord. She would not turn away from his people. This is a perfect example of life and death, good and evil, righteousness and lawlessness, right? Let me give you one more example. I find this appropriate since we began in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to end in Revelation. And what's funny is it's like it's one, one big giant page just wraps around. All one book. All the same book. And we're going to see two women mentioned here in Revelation. I want to begin in chapter 12. We get our introduction of our first woman. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain, to give birth. What an awesome sight for John to see. John's literally seen this a celestial sight. This woman, clothed with the sun, has the moon under her feet, the 12 stars above her head, but he notices something. This woman is in pain. She is ready. She is at the final moment. She is ready to give birth. Now, I have four children. That is not a pretty sight. It's very painful. This is what he sees. This woman is ready to give birth. And we continue in verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. 
His tail drew a third of the stars in heaven. It's very important you understand. His tail drew a third of the stars in heaven. What is this referring to? I'm not going to go here today, but Isaiah 9 is a mere passage of this, what we're seeing right now. Isaiah 9 prophesies of a child to be born, a son is to be given, and on his shoulders will be the government. And he gives him all these magnificent, magnificent names, like El Gibor, Aviad, Peleoetz, Sar Shalom, all these beautiful, powerful names, right? It's a, it's a parallel here. But what we find in Isaiah, moving on later in Isaiah chapter 9, is it talks about the elder and the honorable is the head. The prophet who teaches lies is the tail. The imagery used here is not foreign to a Jew who studies the Tanakh. The imagery used here is very intentional. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. In other words, how did Lucifer, how did Satan draw the angels of God who stood and ministered before God, how did he draw them? Deception. And let me tell you something, that ought to put things into perspective for you. He is so cunning and so deceptive, this is our adversary, that he was able to capture a third of heaven. Angels who saw God in the state he actually is in. Think about the deception involved here. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. And what happened? And threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Fascinating that as John's having this revelation, it's of a past event. This is referring to the birth of Yeshua. John's looking and he sees this woman in pain and labor give birth. And there's the other sign. Literally the dragon is standing right before her to kill that child upon its birth. And we know, go to Matthew chapter 2, read Matthew chapter 2, what happened? We know King Herod caught wind of a king that was being born. A king of Israel, the king of the Jews. Well, we know from Josephus, Herod was called the king of the Jews. And he didn't want to give up his kingship. What's he do? He sends his men out to the district of Bethlehem, of Bethlehem and he wipes out all the boys from two years and under. It's exactly what John is talking about here. So he stood before to devour the child as soon as it was born. We continue in verse 5. But she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Again, going back to Isaiah 9, it talks about, right? He would be the wonderful counselor, right? The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The government would be on his shoulders, this child to be born. This goes back to Isaiah 9. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Now obviously this is referring to Yeshua rising from the dead. There's no question. Ascending into heaven. Sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Now I want to further illuminate all of this for you. And I want to take you back to the book of Enoch. Last time in in, the last message we went to the book of Enoch. Because I want to tie all this in with what we learned earlier today with this woman of wisdom. A woman which is clearly representative of the tree of life, but not only that, of Yeshua. This woman of wisdom is Yeshua. Now, for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, I'll just give a quick disclaimer. I can, I can provide further information, but I'm, I'm only quoting the book of Enoch to add this. This is an extra, this is a deuterocanonical or extra biblical book considered. 
But know this, the book itself is quoted in the New Testament. And it's not quoted as just a passerby, it's quoted as spiritually inspired. Read Jude. He literally quotes the book of Enoch verbatim. And we know it was read amongst the religious Jews because it was found, uh, every, it was found prevalently, if you will, in, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. So enough of the disclaimer. We're just going to go here briefly, and I think it's going to blow your mind. We go to Enoch 42, verse 1. This is what Enoch saw. And what you're going to see is Enoch saw exactly what John saw. But what does Enoch do? We're going to find Enoch uses different terminology. Enoch uses the terminology that we read about in Proverbs 9. This is all, this is like it's one piece of paper here. It all fits together. Wisdom found no place where she might dwell. Then a dwelling place was assigned her in the heavens. This is the exact same statement John made. And you might say, well, that's a kind of a little ambiguous and nebulous. Well, as we continue, it's a passage of clarification. Pay close attention. Verse 2. Wisdom went forth to make her dwelling among the children of men and found no dwelling place. Wisdom returned to her place and took her seat among the angels. It's exactly what we learned about in Revelation. What we just learned about. Yeshua is the bread from heaven. Wisdom came down, right, to dwell with men, but found no dwelling place. One thing that you read about, when you read the Gospel of John, Yeshua over and over says, I'm going away. He's telling his disciples, this doesn't make sense to them because the Messiah is supposed to come and he's supposed to stay here. When we start looking at prophecies, not so. He was supposed to go back. When we look at Enoch, not so. You look at Revelation, he was called to go back. You look at the Gospel of John, all the Gospels. He was supposed to, he came down, but he wasn't going to stay. And he says, John 18, he talks about, my kingdom is not from here. Right? As he's dialoguing with Pilate, my kingdom is not from here. If it were, my servants would fight. His kingdom is not from here. And he also said, I believe in John 14, he also tells his disciple, I'm going away, okay? I'm going away and, and the, the evil one is coming. I have to go away because he has nothing in me. The ruler of this world is coming. Let's continue in Enoch. And unrighteousness, interesting, here you have descending Yeshua, ascending back up, being caught up to the throne of God, right, to God in his throne, and then what happens? And unrighteousness went forth from her chambers. Exactly how it's recorded in scripture, he records these things. Whom she saw not, she found and dwelt with them as rain in a desert and dew on thirsty land. Now going back to Revelation Chapter 12, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and a half a time from the presence of the serpent, verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Verse 17. Listen closely. This goes back to Proverbs 9. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Messiah Yeshua. Does that sound familiar from Proverbs 9? It's the exact same statement. Exactly. So here we are given information about our first woman mentioned in the book of Revelation. This woman is clearly holy. And we're told that it is with the offspring of this woman 
that the dragon is enraged with, and he's going to make war against them. The question, who is the offspring that he's coming after? Who is he going to go to make war with? We're told. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Messiah Yeshua. That's who he's coming to make war with. That's who he's coming for. And this is right here, you know, this is where clarity is brought to the table regarding the mark, the mark of God, the seal of God, and the mark of the beast. This is where it's understood. You know, I've talked about this before, but knowing and understanding what the, what the elect of God look like, those who bear the mark of the Lord, we establish what the mark of the beast is. You understand? When we go to Deuteronomy 6, and we find that the commandments of God are to be placed on their hand and on their forehead. We know what the commandments or what the mark of the Lord is, what the seal of the Lord is. Therefore, we also know what the mark of the beast is, right? This is a mark that we actually find goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. One of the things I mentioned in the last message of Two Trees was that, listen, the terminology that was used in the Garden of Eden to describe Satan, it wasn't a coincidence. Let's go back and look at this in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. It's not a coincidence he is likened to a beast. And then in Revelation it is the mark of the beast. And when, 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 when the Lord was doling out the punishment to Adam, Eve, and Satan, when he gets to Satan he says you will be cursed more than any beast of the field. Right here in the Garden of Eden, we see Satan's mark was openly revealed to all. The mark of the beast. It's a mark that is given to those who compromise their faith in God and break his commandments. You receive the mark of the beast. Generation after generation after generation. Going all the way back to the Garden, understand they've been presented with two paths. The path of life and the path of death. Generation after generation has had to deal with Satan's perverse and seductive scheming. He is tempting to turn mankind from God to entice them to break his commandments. Thereby, they are literally going to take the mark of the beast. And what happens? They become worshipers of the adversary of God. You are keeping what he tells you to keep. You are doing what he is telling you to do, not what God does. That makes you a worshiper of Hasatan, of the evil one. As I mentioned before in my last message, it all comes down to worship. The battle that rages, it's over worship. God's commanded His people, His creation, He is the Creator, He's commanded all of His creation to worship Him. We're to be worshipers of Yeshua, bearing His testimony, keeping His commandments. But unfortunately, Satan desires the same. Satan desires to be God, he desires to be worshipped. And being the great deceiver that he is, he's going to make every attempt to get you to worship him. He's coming to make war against us. If we bear the testimony of Yeshua in our hearts, we've committed our lives to him, we're keeping his commandments, you need to understand, he's coming. He is coming to make war with us every single day. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to do exactly what he did with Eve. He's going to call those who go straight on their way, as we read in Proverbs 9, 
And well, how is he going to do this? He's going to call those who are straight on their way, and he's going to take a lie, and he's going to package it in truth. That's what he does. And it's so critically important that you study God's word, that you seek out the truth with a humble and contrite heart, that you seek out the truth of what really pleases our Father in heaven. This is why it's so vitally important also that you surround yourselves with like-minded believers that fear God and keep His commandments because there is no room for compromise in the faith. The Garden of Eden is a perfect example of that. The whole Bible is a perfect example. There's no room for compromise. There isn't. It produces death. The story of Israel over and over again. Look, go to the wilderness. That did not go well. They compromised their faith. And they died in the wilderness. Now going back to Revelation, let's move into chapter 17 because we're going to get our very different type of woman introduced. Stark contrast to the woman in chapter 12. Revelation 17 verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Uh, No mystery here. Like there wasn't any mystery in Proverbs 9 of the foolish woman. She's called foolish. And look at this woman. She's called the great harlot, clearly not holy, who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. It's interesting that these are the women that mentioned, but they're committing fornication with her. They're listening to her. They're obeying her. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Going to verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now here's where things get interesting regarding this woman. We read and go to verse 4. Ties into Genesis, ties into Proverbs. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup. Understand, this woman is beautiful. She is adorned, arrayed in splendor. She looks glorious, exactly how the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looked in the garden. It was beautiful to behold. Vashti was beautiful to behold. She was, would have been adorned in purple and scarlet. She was a queen. You see the same thing here. What's so interesting about this beautiful woman, she's holding a golden cup. Now, one thing you need to understand about gold is it represents purity. It represents holiness. Any question to this, just look at the temple of God. The holy place, the holy of holies, completely overlaid in gold. Because it represents purity. It represents righteousness and holiness. This is where it gets really fascinating looking at Satan's lies, going back to the garden of taking a lie and literally enveloping it in truth. Because here we have the golden cup, but what is in this golden cup? It's full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. This is the very problem with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, it's beautiful, but unfortunately, inside of it is death. You partake of its fruit, you will die. Why? Why is it filled with what is so abominable? Let's think about this for a second. What is abominable? It's that which displeases God. That's the very definition. It is breaking the commandments of God. That is the definition of what is abominable. 
You know, I find it interesting that the woman here has taken her abominations, wrapped them in gold, right? Exactly how we see the Garden of Eden, that he did in the Garden of Eden, but then as we go through the rest of the New Testament, you'll find Paul and Peter addressing this very same thing. Let me give you an example. In 1 Peter, I didn't put this up here. He warns us. This, this is the warning. Um, Beware foolish men. Um, and let me read the whole passage. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The term used here is, is not, again, a coincidence. Foolish, as in the foolish woman. As free, not yet using liberty as a cloak for wickedness. This is the exact same thing. We see this redundantly over and over again in the New Testament. Paul does this in Titus. They're, they're, they're people who they would profess God. They would profess godliness, right? But they weren't able to distinguish to the pure and the pure. It's amazing. Over and over, we find these things being spoken of. Let's continue in verse 5. And on her forehead... I want to stop right here. What... It, what are we dealing with here? Where does the mark of the Lord go? It goes on your hand and on your forehead. Where does the mark of the beast go? On your hand or on your forehead. In other words, whether you like it or not, you are receiving a mark. Your decision is, is what mark is that going to be? But on this gal's forehead was a name. was written, Mystery Babylon, the Great, the Mother of Harlots, and of the Abominations of the Earth. In verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Yeshua. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The entire word of God is filled from cover to cover of a battle that has been waging since the very beginning of time, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's a battle of worship. It's a battle between good and evil, between light and darkness, between holy and profane, righteousness, lawlessness. It's all about two trees when you really think about it. It's about two women. They represent the epic battle that exists between Yeshua and Satan, right? And really, there's two paths. Every single day that we live, every single day that God gives us to wake up, cherish and make sure you choose life. No matter what the world is throwing at you, no matter what Satan's going to throw at you, you have to choose life. Because if you don't, there's only death waiting at your door. There's only death. And it is going to be horrific. We have to choose life. When people mistreat us, it doesn't matter. We forgive. That's choosing life. When Satan tries to tantalize us with idolatry and covetousness, and pornography, sexual immorality that is running rampant in this country, Hide your eyes. You have to choose life because Satan is preying upon you. He wants to kill you. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? John chapter 10. The music team can come back up. We're going to end here for today.
It's a day.